Manhattan, huh? We let you leave one island, you just go to another one. Welcome to Tessa Watches Lost, Monkey Off My Backlog, second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is Tessa. The phrase, he's my son, to my Michael. Hello. Because he, he has to say it. Like every episode, every episode he's episode. in. Yeah, no, I, I understood. I got where you were going. This week, we're talking about the season four episodes, Jiyun and Meet Kevin Johnson. So after we watched these last two episodes, we talked for a little bit. And I think we have a little bit of a different opinion, you know, knowing where the show's going. I had a moment this week where I realized what season four is trying to do. And it's not what I remember. And it's not as compelling as I remember this season. We talked about it for a bit. And I think that knowing the ending does spoil some of the suspense around this point in the series. I think the other thing, too, is those of us who watched during the original run benefited from the week-by-week, year-by-year way that network television... Well, I guess it still operates, but nobody watches it. These two episodes didn't strike me as a whole lot happening, but I know you don't feel the same way. No, I think it helps that we've tried as best we can to recreate the week-to-week I mean, we're doing two episodes a week, so it's not exactly the same, but it is something that I think does help as I'm watching these episodes unfold. I think the other thing, too, is that even though I do know the ending of the series and I'm curious to know how we get to the ending of the series, I think I'm doing a better job of disassociating my viewing experience from the ending. Like I am thinking about these episodes in the way, maybe not in the way that they were intended, but in the way that... I'm just sort of letting myself experience them and letting myself think about like, oh, what does this mean without necessarily bringing the ending into it? That's fair. And I think to be, uh, I don't know, maybe not fair, but to be something, I was not one of these people. I had faith. I had faith that Krusty will come. I had faith that the Great Pumpkin would show up. I believed that they were not dead. Whole time, whole show. I believed that would be a really cheap way to end this series. I believed Lindelof and Hughes when they said that's not what it is. But there was a fair contingent of people who knew that these people were dead. They they were just completely sure that's what it was. And so they, I imagine, do what... I have done during this podcast and will do during this episode a little bit more later, constantly viewed this through the lens of that belief. But that's not what we're going to talk about right now. What we're going to talk about right now is it's a flash forward. No, it's a flashback. Both. Yeah, we get another Jin and Soon combo episode. They're just one person because they're married. Right, which, you know, I've complained about in the past. I think it works in this one because of the reveal at the end that it is both a flash forward and a flashback. We are getting Jin in the past, before the island, and Sun after the island, right? Uh, Because she's, she's giving birth to her and Jin's daughter. And, of course, this is paralleling things that are happening on the island 
at the same time in their relationship with Juliet, etc. I thought this episode worked pretty well, not only because of the twist at the end and the way that their different views of parenthood are sort of contrasted here, but Honestly, I think this is an argument for what I was saying earlier, because this episode, of course, reveals at the end that Jin has died, question mark. I mean, I'm going to talk a lot in this show about, or in this episode, I'm going to talk a lot in this episode about how the show has sort of taught us not to believe that people are dead at any given time. This episode, I think, does a really good job of being like, oh, this is an end point. Like, we're going to get to the point where Jin is in that grave or he's separated for, from Sun in some way. But the stakes are still real. Like the idea that I do actually care about what happens between the flashback and the flash forward. Like I am very invested in this storyline. I told you a couple weeks ago that we hadn't really checked in on the Sun pregnancy for a while. And that was like a big storyline in the last season. So yeah, I'm really curious. This is a really good job of setting up an episode that both pushes the story forward, tells us where the story is going to end or an ending point for the story, but still makes me interested in seeing how we get to that ending point. So I'm going to tell you something, and it's not a spoiler. It was clearly on the screen when we watched this episode. Jin's date of death is September 22nd, 2004, which was the date of the plane crash. Right. So I, I again don't know if he's dead he could be he could not be it's really hard to tell from Sun's reaction at the grave because she does still go to the grave like is this because she thinks people are watching her and she wants them to believe that Jin is dead or did he actually die on the island and this is just like the place that she can go to who knows like it's very unclear here but she does still sell the pain of being separated from him of not being able to share this moment of parenthood with him. And I think that that's really well done. It leaves it very ambiguous while still bringing you into that emotion. Over the course of this season, we have been teased with the question, who are the Oceanic Six? And this episode really complicated that until realizing that Jin was doing a flashback. So we have the Oceanic Six, we believe. It is Jack and Kate and Aaron, and Hurley, and Saeed, and Sun. Right. Although, as I pointed out to you during the episode, because we see Ben with Saeed, and it's very clear that nobody associates him with like the plane crash or anything like that, it's hard to know if Saeed is actually one of the Oceanic Six, or if he escaped the island by other means because, you know, he's got that whole, like, secret agent thing going on. So there could theoretically be another person. It's just difficult to know at this time. But as far as we know, these are the six people. And going back to the season three finale, Jack tells Kate, we have to go back. In this season, Hurley tells Jack we have to go back. Neither In, in neither instance is that is that statement given any sort of positive thing. Something else odd happens in this episode. This is the pretty much the most time we spend with our favorite Hurley This in these two episodes. Hurley shows up to go to Jin's grave with Sun. 
Hurley asks, is anyone else coming? Is any of the others, the Oceanic Six, I would assume? Sun says no, and Hurley says good. Yeah, this is kind of an odd moment, especially because Hurley doesn't seem to have a problem talking to Jack later. So, I again, it's really hard to know with these flash forwards where exactly they happen in the timeline. We've talked about this before because the Hurley episode seems like maybe it happens after this. Right? I mean, he's in a mental institution after this. So it's it's kind of hard to know exactly what the time frame is. But I do wonder if part of their whole, like, we're going to tell this story and we're going to stick to it is that they don't see each other as much. Right. So would you say it seems like Kate's trial probably happened first. Right. And then, and then this happened second. Right. And then the Hurley, Hurley stuff. Hurley stuff happened. The Jack stuff happens last. Right, which is the one we saw first. Right. Right, when we went through the looking glass. Now we know who all six of them are. Who's in that box? Who's who's in the grave? Who's like, in the box, Tessa? It, who's in the coffin no, no, in the beginning? Who's in the box? No, seriously, I'm asking like, you. Because who's in I the had box? I had all of these like theories about it maybe being Juliet or maybe being like Locke, but now that we actually know it's really hard to know. I mean, we know it's not Kate. We know it's not Jack. I assume it's not Aaron because Kate wouldn't have said the, he's waiting the big for box. me. Right. And she did say he's waiting for me. I don't think it's Sun because she's in Korea. Yeah. Like that leaves Hurley and Saeed, right? Is it Hurley? God, let it not be Hurley. All right. Let's go back to the island. Back on the island, Sun and Jin are staying on the beach. Wait, no, they're going to the barracks. Nope. They're staying. This does kind of read a little bit like a comedy of error. Yeah, except for, uh, let's call her bad guy Juliet. If Hurley is good guy Hurley in this episode, Juliet's definitely bad guy Juliet. Right. Well, we also get the moment between Sun and Faraday where she's like, I'm pregnant. Are you going to rescue me? It's a simple question. Uh, yeah, and he can't answer that. And that's the original reason why she's going to be with Locke, which is weird. Like, I, I'm i not sure I completely understand her reasoning here. And I don't want to say something like, oh, those pregnancy hormones. But that kind of feels I, like... No, I, I think it's pretty simple. It's an issue of lesser evil. Who? The, these people, if you believe these people are trying to kill you... You will go to the person who's not trying to kill you, so like the, even if it's Locke. So, like, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Yes. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, knowing, she does challenge Julia in this episode, too, saying, like, all I have is your word for it. Which I feel like would be a more tense statement if we didn't know that what Juliet was saying was true. Because we had seen all those flashbacks with Juliet. So, like, I feel like... I don't know. I feel like there's just a little bit of like, oh, we have to make something happen here. And so we're going to make this we're going to make this conflict between Juliet and Sun. And I'm not sure I completely believe that this is a real conflict because I don't feel like Juliet. I don't feel like Sun would have trusted Juliet with all of the information the last time that they were together if they were going to have this conflict. That feels a little forced to me. But the way the conflict plays out works pretty well because Juliet in like the most morally gray Julietness of of her character blurts out that she knows that Sun had an affair. And so that's how we get this marital conflict between Sun and Jin, which does feel like it was a long time coming. 
Yeah, I think the thing about the the two factions is what they tried to do this season was set up tension between this group of six people who got off the island who are presumably at the beach mm-hmm. versus everyone who doesn't get off the island who are either at the barracks somewhere else on the island or dead. And so season four is like a season-long game of Red Rover. Where it's like, okay, we know that these people get off the island and these people don't. You know, we know Hurley gets off the island, but he's still with Locke. Right. And we don't know anything about the the non-oceanic people with the exception of Ben. We don't know about Juliet. We don't know about Desmond. We don't know about Faraday, Charlotte, Miles, Lapidus. I mean, I know, but you don't. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point, too, is that just because they're on the island doesn't mean that they don't get off the island. It's really just the people on the plane that we know. It was these six people who got off. Because, yeah, like, they wouldn't call Desmond one of the Oceanic Six. Right. Although, Aaron, that's a stretch. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. But yeah, like I just I feel like some of the conflict was a little like, okay, she's go she's leaving this camp and she's taking Jin and she's not explaining why and she's just asking him to trust her. And like some of that just felt a little weird to me. But you, like You know what didn't feel weird? What? The the fishing moment. Oh yeah, no, Bernard. Oh my god. So that was the best part of this episode for me was the moment when Bernard accidentally intrudes on this fight that Jin and Sun are having. And he's like, are you going fishing? And then he realizes he's in this emotionally charged moment. And he's like, my bad. And like is about to leave. And Jin's like, no, you're coming with me. And so like there, we get this great moment with Bernard, who very accurately points out that they are the only two married people on the island. And so like. And he tells Jin about Rose's condition, and which is, you know, the op- Rose's condition is the opposite of Sun's, right? Rose has to stay on the island, whereas Sun has to leave the island. And so you get this really interesting comparison between the two. But it, that's the best part to me, is this interaction between Bernard and Jin. Like, this moment of talking about what marriage is and what it means in this context, which we haven't really had a discussion about that before. So while all that's happening on the island, some things are happening on the boat. Basically, it's just Saeed finding out things. (laughs) Desmond is sitting there. Saeed is eating lima beans and learning things. Oh, God. The lima beans. I, like, visibly gagged when when I saw him eating those cold lima beans. Ugh. Do what you got to do. No, and I love that he's like, I hope they fix their kitchen problems soon. Well, speaking of kitchen problems, here's what Saeed finds out this week. Ship's broken in a few different ways. Communication is down. Kitchen's broken. Engine's broken. He also finds out that the helicopter's gone. Lapidus has gone on a quote-unquote errand. And the third thing, the penultimate thing, if you will, that he learns is, according to the captain, everyone has extreme cabin Am I the only one who got real Shining vibes off of this episode? No. Like, yeah, and that's what it feels like, is that, like, this boat is stuck in that particular space that the Shining inhabits. I don't know if it's on top of an indigenous grave mound or not, but it's, it's, something is happening to the people on this boat. We see one of them commit suicide at the beginning of the episode, and... 
We've seen the time issues that Desmond had that killed other people. There's a lot, but they're stuck because of all of these technical difficulties. And of course, we've talked about The Shining in the show before in the character of Walt, who is a character that seems to have The Shining. And so it seemed really apt that when Michael reappeared in this show, that we would also... Oh, sorry. It seems really apt that for what happens in this episode, that we would start to get back to those Shining references. And so to move to the last thing that Saeed finds out about in this episode, it begins with a note slipped through the crack in the door to Saeed that says, don't trust the bee in cabin 23. (laughs) Don't trust the captain, Sam. That's a different show. Coming to an episode of Monkey Off My Backlog soon. (laughs) Anyway, so... Who wrote the note? Who wrote the note? It's Michael. And by the way, Tessa, I just want you to know, Harold Perrineau has been in the main cast credits for the entire season. So basically, those same people, probably more people than who thought, you know, everybody was dead the whole time, were like, it's it's Michael. It's Michael. Every time Spence, it's Michael. It's Michael. Oh, there it is. It's Michael. Really glad because I was really upset when they wrote Harold Perrineau off of the show because I really like him. I think he's a great actor. I thought they could do more with that character. And so it was really abrupt the way that they were just like, okay. And then they drove their boat off into the sunset. Cool. And I don't, I just don't know why they didn't recast Walt. Anyway, that's a season two discussion. I <laughs> was really glad to see him. I thought that the Meet Kevin Johnson episode was a really interesting way of talking about what he's been doing off camera. We're going to talk about that later. But yeah, I mean, like maybe I should have been more shocked by this, but I was pleasantly surprised. And I was like, you know what? This is a good thing. I'm excited to see where they go with this. It was a little odd to know he was still working for Ben. Not going to lie. Wouldn't have expected that. At this point in the series, what works best about this show is the idea of a closed cast. We got a major injection of characters at the beginning of the season, and with some notable exceptions, we pretty much got our our cast at this point. So who would it would have who could it have been? Well, if you take all the dead people out, you know, but that's you know, watching the show for me, that's not how my mind works. I would have noticed that Harold Perrineau was in the credits. I know I did. I've taught I've taught you, Tessa, to always look. At You've the started teaching me. I'm not yes. I'm not the best at it, and that's okay. We were watching an episode of Dawson's Creek earlier, and who did you spot? Greg Berlanti wrote an episode. Right. And and we knew that, you know, this is where he got his start, right? It was just nice to see his name. Yeah. It's it's really great. Uh by the way, this is briefly an episode of John Wesley's ship. Uh, appreciation. But of course, he started off as The Flash. That show was canceled ignominiously for, you know, reasons. And so when uh, Kevin Williamson and friends begin Dawson's, you know, this is somebody that he really looked up to, admired, thought was really cool. So got him to play Dawson's dad. And that might very well be how Greg Berlanti met him, which is how he once again became The Flash all those years later. Yeah, it's really funny because I was talking to a friend of the pod, Elise, who was like, I always think of him as Dawson's dad. And because I don't have that cultural background with Dawson's, I was like, I always think of him as Barry Allen's dad. (laughs) I always think of him as Barry Allen. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway. 
He's a good dad. He plays good dad. He, he does play a good dad. Unlike you know who plays a good dad in, in this show? <laughs> Nobody! Yeah, unlike because, the dad in this uh, episode. So, what happened after they sailed away? Well, they got back home. Michael sent Walt to live with Michael's mom, Walt's grandmother. Walt won't talk to him anymore. As we find out, Michael couldn't keep his stupid mouth shut and not traumatize his kid. Yeah, like, more. why would you tell a kid, okay, all right, I get it. I get that guilt is a big thing. I get that your kid is the only other person who went through the experience of being on the island with you, so you might feel like he's the only one who understands where you're coming from. But what parent is telling their kid, oh, by the way, I killed two people in cold blood. Why don't you handle that? This is even worse than what Mitch Leary does to Dawson during season two of Yeah, Dawson's I know. Creek. Yeah. Exactly. And so, like, this is yet another example of parents asking their kids to, like, navigate their emotional turmoil in a way that is just not good. I mean, if you think about it, they've been told, which we didn't know, by the way. We had no idea where they went after the boat. But we find out in this episode that they've been told not to talk about the island. Not, they can't even use their real names. Like, they... they don't exist as people apparently at this point. And so that means that this kid can't even go to therapy. Like he can't even like talk to somebody about his experiences. His grandmother says he wakes up screaming, which, you know, awful. And because we have unresolved issues with his shining abilities, it's like, what if he's all still experiencing things that happen on the island? Like, it's just like a mess. And on top of all that, you're going to be like, oh, by the way, please carry my guilt for me. Thank you. I like you. I like how you brought up the fact that the first rule of surviving the island is don't talk about don't the talk island. Don't talk about the island, apparently. Right. And so, in a in another Palinuckian reference, Libby is Michael's guilt. Oh yeah. So we do get to see Libby again. I think you said while we were watching this. At this point, we've seen more dead people this season than we have in previous seasons as well. Right. It. I. I also said to you that you know Anna Lucy has been invoked. Yes, she but has. But I feel like they were like, okay, which one of these actors is going to cause the least amount of trouble this time? Right. Let's have her back. Let's have the white one back. It's really hard not I, to view it that way. Yeah. And and I told you at that point that, I mean, it's happened to her twice. At least Letty came back. Yeah. Uh, but I said to you that if they told me she was always going to die that way, I guess I would have believed you. But if you told me that Libby was always going to die that way, I'd call you a lying liar who lies a lot. And it's really disappointing to not know what her story was going to be. But I was very pleased to see her back. Yeah, I would have liked to see Nala yeah, Lucia too. It's very brief still. Like, she only gets two scenes and very little dialogue. But they are very used very effectively. Right. To embody that guilt that Michael has over over murder. I mean, he essentially murdered two people for Ben, and it is haunting him. Right. And so we think about the people, we think about Christian Shepherd. We think about uh, the, 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 the man that Hurley met when he was in the institution. We think about Ghost Walt. Ghost, taller, right? taller, taller Ghost, Ghost Walt. Walt. We think about Echo's brother. We think about Charlie. And not only those people, but we think about who they appeared to. 
Right. Right. And so, you know, Michael and Libby are another pair to be added to the list. And so the question to think about is, why is this happening? You know, at first it was like, oh, Magic Island is causing people to appear. And then, you know, with Christian, it was like, well, his body's on the island. That makes sense. And then it was, you know, Echo's brother's on the island. That makes sense. I know Hurley's dude was not on the island. So then you have to start questioning what's happening. And if the island can cause this, how is the island causing it not on the island? I mean, I think that there's a lot in this episode about the idea that these people have been chosen by the island or just being in proximity with the island means that the island doesn't leave them in some ways because, yeah, like there's a lot... Um, We're going to get to it here in a minute when we get to the other person that we see in this episode. But there's a lot in this episode about how Michael can't escape it. Like, he can't get away from it, even though he desperately wants to. I mean, he says he's never going back to that island. I can't go back to that island. And yet he's still drawn back to it by a series of events that are seem to be out of his control. And we that's been really something that this season's been hitting very hard when it comes to these characters is that it's like the island has its has its claws in all these people and it, it can't let them go. It won't let them go, which is why they're inoxorably being drawn back to it. He can't die. Yeah, he can't die. He tries to kill himself a couple of times in this episode, and he survives like a crash, uh, and he also survives trying to shoot himself in the head. And if you think about the idea that they're all dead, this all this is, there's nothing. This is all easy. I don't know. Like you said, I don't know if I buy that this was the ending they were intending the whole time, and so it doesn't really. I don't find it helpful to think about it that way. Even if we don't want to talk about that, there is something that's come up in both of these episodes that requires talking about, and it could or could not touch on that question. The plane that's been found, we are given three options over these last two episodes. One, this is a fake plane crash orchestrated by Benjamin Linus. Two, this is a fake plane crash orchestrated by Charles Widmore. Or three, that's the plane they're all dead. Yeah, it's really interesting the way that we get three different versions of what could have happened with this plane. It's just, it's hard because this season also seems, like I said in the last episode, it seems like it's really setting up this conflict to be like this massive thing between Benjamin Linus and Charles Whitmore, and everybody else just seems like they're like pawns stuck in this chess match between the two of them. So it's really hard to know which one is telling the truth. You want to know what I thought? What do you think? Ben's a red herring. Whole show. Yeah. It's all about misdirection. You're thinking that Ben's the bad guy, and he is a bad guy. Right. Because what the show's done really, really well is made us forget about Dharma. Right, yeah. And so my thought was Charles Widmore and Dharma, that's it. That is, they're, they're trying to exert control over this island because it has some sort of power. Right. Well, and that's what Ben tells us, actually, is that he wants this island because it has power and that once they have Ben, they're just going to kill everybody else on the island. Right. So it's it's a total misdirection. Mm -hmm. The person, there is somebody on screen consistently telling you the truth, but because you think he's a liar, you discount it. 
right? Well, he is a liar. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Right. I mean, he is a liar. That's the thing. But he's telling the truth. Well, yeah, or but once you tell the once you tell lies so many times, I mean, it's also the boy who cried wolf. This is literally why nobody believes him, even though he has now managed to talk Locke into allowing him to be at the table again somehow. But like Sawyer's instincts are right. Like the idea that you can't trust him at all. And it doesn't matter if he tells the truth because he used he uses the truth to lie. Right. I mean, Emerson's done such a good job about making his roles on Arrow and uh, Evil doing this very doing a very similar thing. It's really great. Um, but the point to bring up Ben here is that Michael is the second person we know of from the the plane crash to be put in Ben's employ. First, it was Saeed. And now it's Michael, although Michael happened first, of course, uh, chronologically. Michael is approached by Tom. Another person who dies later. Yes. And is recruited to get on the boat, sabotage the boat, and eventually make sure that everybody on the boat is dead. I'd also like to point out that Tom is the one who tells Michael that he can't kill himself, that the island won't let him. He actually is the person who says that, which makes me think that maybe Tom has tried to kill himself Somebody previously. Somebody probably has. I yeah, because he because he actually says like, did the gun just not fire, or did it bounce off your skull? Like, right. So he has experience with this. Yeah, there's a lot to to not know here. Yeah. I mean, the the thing is, if you start to cumulatively add up the things that we don't know the answers to, there's a lot. And this episode does a pretty good job of. You know, we talked in the last episode about where's everybody else in this flat in this flash forward timeline. This episode gets us back to another question or another set of questions. What's happening? Right. Yeah. And I I think that that's fascinating, though, to think about why do certain people die on the island if the island won't let other people die or are they really dead? Because, and I know what you're going to say, but like the taking this episode where it is, it is interesting to talk about like why, for an example, is Tom permanently dead or is he permanently dead? Does anybody on this island permanently dead? Like that, that I think is the real question here because I just, this, this show has taught me to believe that even if people die, we still see them again. And then there are people who have like miraculous recoveries people we thought were dead, but who aren't dead later because the island has some sort of healing property. Right. And and it's sad that the production gets in the way of this, this issue. The island wants certain people. Right. And so that's the question, right? Because there's also still the mysterious list, right? Which we've never really gotten a lot of closure on. Because at first it's like, well, this is a list that Ben is putting together of people that he thinks that he can convince to join his cult because that's what cult leaders do. But at the same time, it could also be like, what qualities is the island looking for? Like, what does the island value? So before we get back to the the actual island in this episode, to round out the Kevin Johnson-ness of Meet Kevin Johnson, did Saeed do the right thing? You know, it's really hard to know. <laughs> and of course, we're left on a cliffhanger. It's actually a double cliffhanger. This is the first cliffhanger. Right. So here's the thing. I can I can see Saeed's point of view, but we have to like think about Saeed as a character as well to understand what he's doing here. Because 
as we were reminded at the beginning of this season, Saeed is somebody who does things in order for other things to happen, right? He has an objective. He doesn't mind getting his hands dirty in order to achieve that objective, which is why when he's told to retrieve Charlotte, he just ends up trading Miles for her because he's like, you told me to bring back Charlotte, you know, so I was going to do whatever I needed to do in order to make that happen. So here we get to see another example of that where he wants to achieve the objective of the people on the island getting rescued. And so he sees Michael as an obstacle to that, right? He sees Michael. And I think that I think that Saeed doesn't necessarily think that the captain is a good person and that he's legitimately trying to rescue them as much as he sees Michael's commitment to killing everybody on the boat and himself as being a dangerous variable. And so by outing Michael to the captain, he's trying to remove that variable from the situation. Plus, Michael's the one who's actually killed people. He hasn't seen the captain kill anybody yet. Fair enough. I just also have to say that Desmond has no idea what's going on because he did not join the show when Michael was around. And so he's just like in the background making faces the whole time. And it's great. Speaking of situations with volatile variables, Locke has a family meeting. Oh, God. I hated this. I hated every moment of this. Anything particular about the meeting you hated or you just hate it all? I hate that Ben has once again weaseled his way out of trouble by manipulating Locke because Locke's need to be the main character is just like, oh my God, like every single time people get one over on him because he can't like see past it. It's just, ugh. And just like Sawyer looking at him the whole time. Like Ben has actively tried to harm or has harmed every single person in that room. And it's just like, why? Why is he still here? Why are you listening to him? Anyway, that's it just felt like a very tense situation. And Locke is trying to be the leader and the good guy here. And it's just not working. Like it's a it's a Locke tatership and it was just never going to work the way that he wanted it to. It just feels like he's a mouthpiece for Ben now. Good times. So one of the things that comes out and the last thing that we're going to talk about today is Ben tells Alex that she has to leave. Bad things are about to happen, and she needs to go to the last place on the island that's safe. It's where most of his people are. It's called the Temple. Temple is super fun. And eventually, mostly because Danielle says it's a good idea, Danielle, Alex, and Carl... Oh, Carl. Make their way to the temple, and Carl dies so fast, he's immediately dead somehow for reasons. Danielle makes a run for it. She's probably dead, too. We are left with Alex, hands in the air, shouting, I'm Ben's daughter. This made me really angry. (laughs) Mainly because, I mean, again, we have no idea if either of these characters are dead, but... If well, we, dead. Yeah, I mean, if we believe that they're dead, if the island isn't going to heal them or whatever, it just felt like a scene from The Walking Dead oh! for shock. Yeah, I mean, not just the Carl part, but like for shock value, like to have a character lose two people that she really cares about so suddenly in front of her like that. It just it really felt like it was more about that. It was more about the fact that they didn't know what to do with these characters. No loose ends. Yeah, and I really liked Rousseau. I always wanted more with her. I actually always wanted a flashback with her. I thought it would be really interesting to see her perspective on those early months on the island by herself. 
But we're never going to get that because they just couldn't figure out what to do with her. And also, like, how did they not know this was going to happen? I mean, Ben has clearly wanted Alex to be just his daughter the whole time. And so it just, it feels like a setup. The one thing I did like about it is the ambiguity of the ending because you don't know who shot the two of them. You don't know if it is Ben's people or or people from the boat or somebody else. So like the fact that she can yell, I'm Ben's daughter, and that makes her automatically valuable to whoever it is. It doesn't matter who it is. I think that that's interesting but I don't like what how that how easily they killed off a character who has just been so great for the beginning of the show. Right. And, you know, we talked about how the island thinks that people are important. I think Lindelof and Cuse have people who are important, too. And I think Rousseau was always just going to be somebody who furthered the story when necessary. Right. And I, qu- I don't like that. Right. Well, the question is, why is Alex important to the story? I guess we'll find out later. Final thoughts? I don't know where this is going, so it's hard to know how much this furthered the story, but I enjoyed both episodes immensely. Like, I am still very sold on these characters and what's happening to them. I'm glad we got a little closure on the Sun and Jin storyline. I'm glad that we're getting somewhere with Harold Perrineau's character. Like, yeah, I want to know what happens. Okay, that's it for today. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the shape of things to come and something nice back home. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and you can find Tessa at Suela Tessa. Until next time. Now that's karma. We must be the good guys, huh?